Thank you, Ken and Barbara, for our music this morning. Welcome to those of you joining us on live stream. We're in Psalm 16, where we have been for a few weeks. This is our fifth message from that psalm. We're taking a couple of verses at a time. Here in the auditorium a few minutes ago, we read verses 7 and 8. Let me reread them to you again. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night season. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Beautiful words that lead into the last three verses that have specifically to do with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the, the 16th Psalm is really one of those mountain peaks of the book of Psalms. Uh, it might be the clearest gospel psalm of them all because the New Testament applies it, especially the last uh, four verses, directly to uh, what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us in his death, burial, and resurrection, which we will see uh, some of this morning. As a matter of fact, Peter chooses these four verses from verse 8, 9, 10, 11 to quote at his sermon on the day of Pentecost uh, to support his gospel of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So these verses are, are very important in that way. David had that great ability uh, to look forward as a prophet. As a matter of fact, Peter in his sermon will call him a prophet. And not only to believe fully what this prophecy of Christ is saying, but also the ability to apply it to his life and to live that way because of what he understands is coming in the future. And so in this psalm, especially in these last verses, he sees the death, burial, and resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. And he will, we will see that that brings him confidence that he will one day be resurrected. If the Lord is resurrected, that means we will all be, right? And so uh, that's our confidence. That's why Easter to us is so precious and, and why we speak of the resurrection of Christ, because that's our resurrection. If, if he didn't rise, we certainly will not. So uh, it means a lot to us like it did to David. Now, uh, we will see in verse 7 more of the personal application to David and to us and so forth. And then secondly, when we move to verse 8, and we'll go back and read Peter's words when we do this, uh, and see how these verses are applied directly to him. I like the very last statement uh, in verse 8. When we know all of this, we will not be moved. <laughs> so can I ask you, uh, are you moved? Uh, are you moved away from the gospel? Uh, don't we believe in the, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we wouldn't give that up for life or death? I hope so. I hope that we're not moved about that. What about all of what God says in God's word, as he says to us that and many other things? Are we moved away from those? Uh, I hope that we are not. I hope that though it's a short statement here, uh, that we'll come to that conclusion and we will see how important it is for us not to be moved away from our faith uh, of the gospel. You don't have to go very many days back, a few days, a week back, a couple weeks back, and we see this world bringing the pressure on uh, our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. The globalism uh, that is all over the World Economic Forum and the World Health Organization uh, alone. 
uh, just bringing pressure on anyone who disagrees with them. A one world government is coming. We know that that's true uh, in, the, in the scripture. Uh, will that move us? Will that cause us to compromise? How about the new religion of self? You know, the new religion of self is what Satan started out with. I will be like the most high God. I'll be my own God. I, I believe that the word democracy though we're a representative republic, I understand, but I think the word democracy, most people is defined as, I should be able to do whatever I want to do. That's what democracy means. And if you say, I can't do what I want to do, then you're undemocratic. You're not constitutional. I mean, I think that's kind of where we are. And someday they're going to say, uh, you can't practice what you want. You've got to practice the way I want. So Christianity at the same time becomes more inclusive, more less specific, I should say, culturally relevant and even very ecumenical, and the pressure is always on us to move away too. So as we consider this psalm, uh, I hope it encourages us in our faith in many different ways. So four statements again in these two verses, and I break uh, these thoughts into four different thoughts, and I have a few underneath uh, I'll give to you. Uh, notice the Lord's counsel. Isn't that what chat, uh, verse 7 says? I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. Is the Lord your shepherd? He was David's, right? Uh, we're not surprised that, uh, you know, when David refers to the Lord leading him, giving him counsel, doing whatever, uh, that uh, he knows uh, the Lord as his shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I what? I shall not want. There's nothing else I need outside of that. Uh, that's the most important thing I need. In, in the 80th Psalm, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, who dwell between the cherubim. Shine forth, the psalmist says. And so we know who the Lord is. David made him his shepherd. Israel made uh, the Lord his shepherd. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself made God the Father his shepherd in always doing the will of the Father while he was on this earth too. So uh, he will lead you if you follow him in the paths of righteousness, as the 23rd Psalm says. But bless the Lord. Be thankful to him, secondly. What does it mean to bless? Listen to these statements in 34 verse 1, all in the book of Psalms. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. In Psalm 103, a number of different times. Verse 1, bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me, bless his holy name. Verse 20, bless the Lord, you his angels. Verse 21, bless the Lord, you his hosts. Verse 22, bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord. You know, I... I first thought to myself, it kind of sounds backwards. Isn't God supposed to bless us? How, how is it that we bless the Lord? How, how is it that, that we do this toward him rather than him blessing us and doing it toward us? Well, bless here means praise. It means thankfulness. It means to give your praise and your thankfulness uh, and yourself back to him. We might say it's kind of the opposite of taking the Lord's name in vain. You know, a lot of people uh, you know, blaspheme God and, and take his name in vain by using his name. We ought, rather than do that, we ought to 
have blessing on our lips and blessing on our tongue when we speak about our Lord and about uh, what he is to us. We have to be careful about those things. I read that familiar story again uh, this week about Samuel Morse, who in 1844 uh, sent that Morse code across a 40-mile wire from Washington, D.C. up to Baltimore. As a matter of fact, he did it from the basement of the House of Representatives of, of, uh, of Congress because this would become official, and he's sitting there uh, with all of uh, the congressmen around him, and he's got his little code here and his wires hooked up, and 40 miles away is his assistant up in Baltimore, and for the first time they're going to try to send a signal from here to there. And as I've often said, this was the beginning of instant communication. Never before have you been able to to have instant communication to someone who's not in your presence uh, that far away. And so he begins to tap it out in a code that he devised that his name became famous for, the Morse code. And so he types it out. And you know what he typed? Do you remember what it is he put on there? He put words from Numbers 23:23, what hath God wrought? What has God done? Haven't you loved it those times when, when we've sent uh, astronauts into space and they see the beauty of God up there, they look back on this earth and they make something about, some statement about God's creation. Isn't that a great thing? It's good to bless the Lord in times like that, isn't it? It's good when you have an opportunity to say, this is what God has done. This is what God is doing for me. And that is what he did. That's what uh, the psalmist here, or David, says uh, he does. I will bless the Lord. I will have his name always on my lips. But he's given you counsel, too. That means direction. That means wisdom. Hasn't the God, uh, God your, your Lord, directed you, given you counsel? Isaiah 9, 6, the Lord himself, uh, his name shall be uh, the mighty God, the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace. He's the wonderful counselor. He's, he's the one that can give you counsel. I want you to do this with me. Uh, either listen or turn to Romans 15, if you can quickly. Romans 15, 4 through 6, a passage that I read this week, and I, as I was thinking about these things, uh, I thought, boy, this, this illustrates exactly what this part of our verse is saying. Let let the Lord bless him and let him give you counsel. Look at the way Paul does this in Romans 15, beginning in verse 4, where he says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning. That is, all of the Scripture, even though in our lesson an hour ago we were talking about how the New Testament is specifically designed for the church, but all Scripture is profitable for doctrine, reproof, and correction, and instruction in righteousness. So whatever things were written before were written for our learning. Notice that. Here's the reason. Here's the purpose. That we, through the patience and comfort. Now mark those two words, patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. We have hope in God. We bless God. We have patience and comfort. <laughs> I hope you have both of those words. Maybe sometime you have one of them, <laughs> maybe neither of them, but boy, we need both. We need patience and we need comfort. 
Then he says in verse 5, Now may the God of what? Patience and comfort. Where, where does patience and comfort of the Scripture come from? From God. And where did God put it? He put it in the Scriptures. Now, when you pray, folks, it's your words going up to the Lord. But how does the Lord give His words back to you? How does He respond to you? In this book. This is where the patience and comfort comes from. If you're not reading it, don't expect to receive the comfort and patience of the Lord. But let's say we all do, as Paul is supposing here to the Roman church. Now, may the God of patience and comfort do what? Grant you to be like-minded with one another according to Christ Jesus. How, how can a church have great fellowship? How can we bless the Lord in our meetings? Isn't it by reading His Word, receiving patience and comfort, which come from God in His Word, and then it allows us to have this great fellowship with one another and to be encouraged. Why is it churches come together? Why is it God commands us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves? Because you need the patience and comfort, and you're going to get it as we all express it toward one another in our meetings. And so, that you might be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, then verse 6, that, another purpose, you may be, or you may with one mind and one mouth do what? <laughs> Glorify God. It goes in a complete circle. So that you can bless the Lord. That you can say, Lord, this is of you. Thank you for what you've given me. Thank you for the patience that I needed. Thank you for bringing me comfort. Thank you for answering my prayers. Thank you for, for giving me today my daily bread, what I needed for today. And so there's the cycle. Paul uses it here as he does in many places in the Word of God. No wonder the psalmist then could say, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And you, you can with your soul. So number one, back to our outline and back to Psalm 16, the Lord's counsel in the first part of verse 7. And then the second statement is, my heart instructs me in the night season, or my reins instruct me in the night season. And I have here as a, a thought, the heart's conscience. Now, why do we say that? Well, first of all, I want to talk about your conscience for a minute. And it's an interesting note, and I'll, I'll hit this a few th things here, that this word, whether you translate it heart or actually more specifically reigns, comes from a Hebrew word, kilia, which means your kidney, <laughs> your kidneys. I knew you'd want to know that, and write, you're writing that down to take it home, but it, that's what it means. So heart is kind of a general term for it, but reigns is a little more specific let me quote Alan Ross, who uh, ha, has a recent uh, large volume on Psalms, does a great job. He says this, that the visceral organs were used for spiritual capacities. And so we classify them as metonymies of subject. Well, <laughs> what that means is it's a substitute of the attribute of something for the same thing itself. If I say uh, God's going to bring his sword on a certain nation. We mean his wrath, right? If we, if we talk about the crown in England, we're talking about the king or queen. And so here, 
uh, he says this is the way God talks to us about what he's doing. And then he goes on to say the heart and the liver (laughs) are the most frequently used, especially the heart. How many times do you remember in the Bible the heart, you know, the the seed of emotions, the seed of learning, as a man thinks in his heart and so forth. The the word heart can be used to describe a lot of things. But then he says, but the kidneys (laughs) often refer to the conscience, the thing that guides you is why the older interpreters use the word reins, like the reins on a horse that guides a horse. The reins that guide you uh, refer to it this way. Psalm 7, 9 says, Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just, for the righteous God tests the hearts and the minds. 26.2, examine me, O Lord, prove me, try my mind and my heart or my reins. And then in 73.21, thus my heart was grieved, I was pricked in my reins. You remember the expression in the Bible about being pricked in the conscience? When Peter preached at Pentecost, uh, they were pricked in their conscience. It follows them that way. Now, folks, God made us in his image. And that's why we have a conscience. Uh, Your dog doesn't have a conscience. Your cat might have, but probably not. Uh, Squirrels don't have consciences. People have consciences. Why? Because we're made in God's image to think God's thoughts after him. And when we're not thinking God's thoughts after him, it pricks us in our conscience. and And that's the way it should be. Now, remember this. We're fallen creatures, too. We're made in God's image, but we've become sinful creatures. So all of the good things that could apply to us, sometimes we turn into bad things. Your conscience has to be trained. And so it's trained by that word of God, as we read in Romans 15. Your conscience is is informed by God's word so that when you meet a circumstance, You need to be led one way or the other, and if it's been formed and trained the right way, then that's the way you go. You do that with your children. God does it with us. We train our our kids so that when they meet those challenges of life, they will make the right decision. We're training their conscience to do that. We have to be trained in the same way. So, So your conscience can be a friend or foe, even a believer who spends no time in God's Word but watches all kinds of stuff and listens to all kinds of stuff in this world can train his conscience or her conscience in a totally wrong way. So conscience is a good thing because we're human beings made in God's image and we have it. Now, notice in our verse again in in uh, uh, 7b, the second part, what does it do? My heart, my kidneys, instructs me. Here's an interesting thing. That word instruct is the Old Testament word for chastise, for punishment, and sometimes teaching. But isn't chastising teaching? Doesn't God do that that to those that he loves? He punishes us sometimes. He chastises us sometimes. And think of how your conscience chastises you often. And all of a sudden, when you do something you know is wrong, boy, that conviction comes and that burden comes, and rightfully so, because it is instructing you. It is even chastising you. 
Years ago, an older writer, David Dixon, said this. They, referring to the kidneys, because that's the word here, are the most hidden parts of the body. They are the nearest to the back, back here, of any of the inward, he calls them noble parts, like the heart and so forth. They purge the blood and are the furniture of life, he says. I like that expression. They are the furniture of life. They inform us. And I was thinking as I'm reading this that I remember, and I can't forget, one time when I had a kidney stone. And some of you have had stones, and some of you have multiple kidney stones. And if you've never had one, praise the Lord. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. But I had one, and I'm telling you, it starts right back there. And I could tell you stories about that day, but, but the bottom line is I found out what causes it for me and man, it, it, it's things that I ate, that, you know, Tums and Rolaids and stuff like this, and it created a stone in me, and I have never done it since. I'll live with the heartburn first. I'll die of heartburn first and the, to do that again. I, I went to a chiropractor the morning that this stone started moving because I had a sore neck. And he works me over for about an hour. And as he did, this stone started moving. And I felt terrible. And he said, how are you doing? I said, I'm terrible. <laughs> the more he worked on me, the worse I got. And I, got, I think I, I crawled out of his office that day. So you, if you've had stones, you know what I mean. So do they instruct you in the night season? <laughs> I mean, I, I, again, I, I think the, the analogy here is perfect. If you've passed a stone, you know, everything's fine, and then all of a sudden that thing moves, and, man, you just curl up into a ball, and you, the pain sets in, and there's nothing you can do about it. So what am I saying? God uses this as an illustration to say that he instructs your conscience in the night season. He instructs you when you need to be instructed. There's also... A statement in Jeremiah 17:10, if you're writing down verses to look up later, I the Lord search the heart, I try the reins, even to give to every man according to his ways. And he uses both words. There's a word for heart, and then there's a word for reins. And he distinguishes between the two. The heart is the broader thing that can apply to a lot of things, but the kidney, <laughs> the rain is uh, is just that, the conscience. And I like to, you know, if you, if you look up the word rain in a dictionary or online or something like that, you'll find the first use is a horse and a bridle, you know, and you put that on a horse and you have reins in your hand. And what do you do with those reins? You guide the horse. What does God do with your conscience? He guides you. And sometimes in the night season, thirdly, you have in this verse. And so uh, you have these kinds of statements in the book of Psalms, 17, verse 3, right here close by. Thou hast proved my heart. Thou hast visited me in the night. Thou hast tried me and shall find nothing. I am a purpose that my mouth shall not transgress. David says, when you try me, you lead me. I want to be right with you. Job, in Job chapter 7, verse 4, said, When I lie down, I say, When shall I arise? And the night be ended, for I have had my fill of tossing till dawn. Have you ever had one of those nights where your conscience is bothering you? 
or you, you wake up and you start thinking about something and you can't go back to sleep, especially if it's something you need to confess. I, I don't know about you, but I've, I've found myself on my knees in the middle of the night a number of times. Because, you know, if God brings something to your heart that, that uh, is, is wrong, you shouldn't have said, you shouldn't have done, then confess it. It's what we should, what we should do. But then I find these kinds of verses. Psalm 30, verse 5. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. For lo, he giveth his beloved sleep. And when you're right with the Lord and your conscience is right with the Lord, then the sleep can come. 42.8, the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and in the night his song shall be with me, a prayer to the God of my life. And so it's wonderful when your conscience is led that way. So we have in our verse, verse 7, my heart also instructs me, it chastises me sometimes, in the night seasons, but God brings a song in the night. Now, verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Now, I want you to go with me to Acts chapter 2. Would you do that? Do you have your Bible with you? In Acts chapter 2, I want you to see these verses. I know I've talked about this and I've referred to it, I think, in every message that we, we have had. But I want you to see it in your Bible, and I want you to have this set in your mind, uh, that here, as we begin these verses, we are beginning a, a special section in this psalm. From our verse, verse uh, 8, to the end of this psalm, Peter will tell us these are the words about Jesus Christ. Now, here he is preaching, and uh, and uh, he is talking about in verses 22, 23, 24, that Jesus died and God raised him from the dead. How is he going to prove that to the people who are listening to him? Verse 25 of, of Acts 2. For David says, notice, concerning him, and now he quotes it. I foresaw the Lord always before my face. He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. We'll have the word moved. Therefore, my heart rejoiced. My tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh shall also rest in hope because you will not leave my soul in Hades or hell, nor will you allow your Holy One, capital letters referring to Christ, to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life you will make me full of joy in your presence. Now, those are the words from Psalm 16. But read on with me a little bit. Now, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David. He is both dead and buried. His tomb is with us today, to this day. As a matter of fact, by the way, folks, on the day of Pentecost, the Jews would go back to Jerusalem and celebrate uh, the tomb of David, and they would actually go down to the tomb of David and look at it on the day of Pentecost. So you go down there, you'll see. David's still there. Now verse 30, Therefore being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. And he, foreseeing this, spake concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades. 
nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. And so what are these verses telling us? Telling us that David understood and Peter understood, understands here that these verses speak specifically of the resurrection of Christ himself. David even knew that. He saw it beforehand. He knew when he died, his body would see corruption, but he knew that God had said, the Holy One that comes out of you will never even, his body can't even see corruption in the grave because he's sinless. Sin has no authority over him. So as we go back to Psalm 16 and look at this again, verse 8, I have the face's countenance. That is because he has set the Lord always before him always before his face. So I have set the Lord. I have set him. What did Jesus do in his lifetime? Didn't Jesus always do the will of the Father? Didn't he always set the Lord before him in every area of his life? As a matter of fact, listen, uh, listen again to Hebrews 12, 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Even facing the cross, he sets the Lord before him and the joy that he will have with the Lord, and then uh, he goes to the cross for our sins. He always set the Lord before him. Let me ask you, didn't David do that? Isn't David saying here in this psalm, I know this is what my Lord one day will be like. I can be like that. And I think, folks, that's the way you and I have to look at it. We have to realize if the Lord led the way, if we set him before our face, if we follow him as our example, then there's no trial and no hardship in this life that we can't face if we set the Lord always before us. Now, he also says here, always. We would pass right over that word, but some good men that I read, good commentaries and so forth, emphasize this in a correct way. You know what? You don't always do it, do you? <laughs> you don't always set the Lord before you. You don't do it in an infallible way. You have those times when you fail to do that. You have those times when your conscience needs to chastise you because you haven't always set the Lord before you. But when we think of Christ, he always set the Lord before him. There was never a time when he did not. In Hebrews 5, 7, it talks about as he approached the cross of uh, uh, his own cross, it says, who in the days of his flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, he was heard because of his godly fear. Even though the Lord, he had to say, not as I will, but as you, and God says, then you'll go to the cross, he was always setting his face before him. Now, we could say there's a caveat if we want to call it that, and that caveat is he bore our sins. And even though he had no sins, he went to the cross because he always set the Lord before him, 
and took upon himself our sins so that he could put on us his righteousness. He who knew no sin was made sin for us that the righteousness of God might be on us. And so he took our sins, but he was sinless himself, and that's the only way any way could have done it. And so speaking of the Lord, he sets the Lord before him, and he is always doing this without fail, without fault all of his life. He was sinless and a perfect sacrifice for us, and he sets him before him. In other words, always first, always putting the Lord's will first. And again, that verse that I've referred to, Mark 14, 36, he said, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. He was expressing what humanity would say. He, he knew what he had to do. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Always he put the Lord before anything else. And so not only that, his obedience was perfect. Isaiah 53.10 has, it's almost an odd verse, but it's a beautiful verse. Isaiah 53, you know, the sacrifice of Christ. Verse 10 says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. When you read that, you think it pleased the Lord to bruise his own son on the cross. And you think to yourself, how could that be? And the, the reason is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for your sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. You know what David realized, I think, here? God will not let me spend eternity in hell. He will resurrect me into his presence because of his faithfulness to his own son. And I have made his soul an offering for my sin. That's the gospel, folks. That's the blessing of grace that we have. So, the face's countenance, I want to say one more thing, and that's the hand's confidence. And by the way, I, I have here a verse from Job 19.25, which you know. Job, what, 15, 1600 years before David, says, I know that my Redeemer liveth. He shall stand in the latter day upon the earth, and after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh... I will see God. Now, how did Job know that? How did Job see so far ahead and say, I know my Redeemer lives, and I know that I will stand in the latter day in my flesh and see God? Because he had confidence that Messiah one day would die and resurrect for him. That's a, that's a great statement, a marvelous statement when you think so many years before it actually happened. So let me, let me look at the last thing. The hand's confidence, verse 8, again, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Because he is. The Lord was not moved from his purpose. The Lord was not moved from the cross that he had to bear because he is uh, always before me. Job knew how to do that, evidently. David knew how to do it. Christ accomplished it. Can you do it? Can you always put the Lord before you, and because he is before you, 
He's at your right hand. Someone I read said, you know, remember that a soldier always had the shield on his left hand and the sword in his right hand, assuming he was right-handed, of course. The shield's in the left, but the, but the positive uh, action uh, uh, part is in his right hand. He is always, so the right hand is always that hand of strength. The right hand is always that hand that does things. The right hand is the one that serves you and God blesses you with because... He says, the Lord is always before me. He, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. I think Jesus knew that resurrection was inevitable, didn't he? He knew that the Lord was always at his right hand. He said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, I will be in the Lord, in the, in the heart of the earth, and then I'll be resurrected. If you take this, the temple of this body and destroy it, in three days I'll build it again. He had that confidence of the Lord being his right-hand strength, and he knew that resurrection was inevitable. And what David is saying here is, so is mine, and so is yours. I, if I die and you put this body in the ground, which someday it will unless the Lord comes back, uh, someday this body's going, I know that in my flesh I'll see God, as Job said. I know that. I have that confidence because he was at the Lord's right hand. He's at my right hand. I shall not be moved. David could say, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Thou art with me. I will not be moved from my hope. Even though I face death and I face the worst thing that could come, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. And you can too, and you can have that confidence. So let me wrap it up just by saying this. If David and Job could look forward to a prophecy, a promise that was a thousand years into their future and have such confidence, can't we, who are looking back 2,000 years to a historical fact, have confidence that as he was resurrected, you and I will be resurrected and have eternal life. And isn't that the gospel? He did it so we can do it. We place our faith and trust in him. We will have eternal life just as he has it. And that uh, immortality of life we're waiting for. All right, stand with me if you will. Thank you for the time. Let's uh, stand and bow our heads, go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll sing a song together. Father, how we... Th praise you and thank you for this wonderful song that we have in the Old Testament and these wonderful promises that you have assured us refer to our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for such wonderful truth, such great faith that we see in David or Job or these Old Testament saints. And Father, thank you also that we can have such confidence and, and faith in it also. I pray, Father, that many today uh, that hear your gospel preached anywhere in this world will put their faith and trust in what Jesus did for them and know that they have eternal life. So, Father, bless us as we think about those things. Bless us, Father, as we just try to overcome our fears and the, and the condemnation of our conscience and those things we need to confess to you, how we need to draw near to you and bless you always. And so, Father, help us to have that conviction and help us to do that now, even as we sing together. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
Ken's going to come and lead us in a song of invitation.